Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. It turns out uh, a, a lot of you guys, we've gotten a, a whole bunch of new listeners in the last couple of weeks. I think we had a, a couple of banger episodes in a row. And so welcome. Uh, always make sure you go back through the backlog. There's a lot of good stuff there. We've tried to make uh, all of this uh, as evergreen as possible. So hopefully uh, you can enjoy it, uh, especially as you you know gear up for maybe some uh, fall driving, You know, going out to see the colors. Maybe you're, you're traveling to see your family, I think that uh, we have much content to, to provide you with and hopefully much more content to come. Um, we've been plugging for a couple of weeks now that if you leave a cool review, uh, we will we will say it on the show. And so I have three of them to read out for you today. Uh, we have a five star review from uh, Keat91. Uh, terrific podcast. I staunchly support this vision for American conservatism. Family policy, industrial policy, social traditionalism. Couldn't be happier with this direction, and the interviews are a stunning slate of rock star guests. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Keith. It's very nice of you. Um, if you email podcast at AmericanMoment.org, uh, we will put you in running to uh, uh, to get a shirt uh, of American Moment. So uh, be sure to do that. Um, the next one is uh, from Seth. Uh, love the pod. I'm a recent college grad and live in a small Kansas town. Outside of something like a fellowship, since I'm already in a comfortable job, is there anything someone like me in the middle of the country could do to help the work of the new right, maybe in my free time or after work? I've read or listened to many of your guests and was just curious if there was any way to spread your ideas and work in my community. Keep up the awesome work. Well, it's funny that you asked that, Seth, because we actually talk about this a lot on our episode today with our guest, Andrew Kloster. Uh, if you wait till the outro, uh, we read out his Rules for Radical Patriots, which is basically as comprehensive a guide as I can find on how to do that. But I guess, you know, more abstractly or maybe in our own words, um, I would say it's it's actually be a part of your local community. Look, I'm not going to tell you to stop listening to our very national issues focused podcast. In fact, please do keep listening to it and share it with your friends and give it five stars and give it five stars. But don't <laughs> forget to actually be engaged in your local community. Uh, look, we recently had on Riley Keaton, who's in the West Virginia House of Delegates. If you're in a state where that's possible, go do that. Go run for state rep. Go run for school board. Go run for city council. Go do the little things the left is so good at uh, totally occupying in order to advance their agenda. Uh, we can do it also. Uh, and yeah, there'll be a New York Times article saying that it's the incipient rise of fascism that a lot of you know based moms and dads are running for a school board, but that's okay. It's still worth doing, uh, and they can't harass all of us. It's not fascism to care about your children's education. That's right. It's not. Um, so, so, so definitely do that, and it's an important um, attitude to have for sure. Um, and then lastly, uh, we have a five-star review from Sam. Now, this one's a little bit uh, of a cheat. It's definitely from my roommate, who happens to be named Sam. <laughs> I was about uh, to ask. <laughs> I, I did not ask him to write this for what it's worth. In fact, I he would probably throw like an egg at me if I did. But for what it's worth, it's uh, the podcast that the so-called American right probably doesn't want, but the one it most certainly needs. Smarts and storylines which rise above the cesspool of conservative media content ad majorum de glorium, which is, you know, his, his spice. <laughs> For us non-Catholics, what does that mean? Uh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> uh, and so anyway. Well, now uh, I know why, like, whenever I come over to your house, Sam is so, like, 
familiar with me, even though I've only met him like once or twice, and it's because he's been listening to my voice for hours That's and right. hours and hours at a time. That's so right. Thank you for your listenership and your uh, very kind review, Sam. Right. And, and thank you to everyone. So, you know, help us get to, I think we're at 95 reviews. If we cross 100 by this next episode, we'll be super grateful. Again, we're giving out some free shirts. Um, stay plugged in. Uh, you can also buy some of our Teddy Roosevelt themed merch. We had some uh, uh, extras that we were lucky enough to be able to sell. So go on our website to go find that. Um, and uh, just in general, uh, check out everything that we're doing at AmericanMoment.org. We've put up an interest form uh, for our fellowship, which will release applications for sometime uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, There's just always a ton of great stuff, including the backlog of this podcast. But it's enough throat clearing. Uh, I want to read out the bio for our fantastic guest today, who's uh, been someone uh, who's on the very small list of people who I sort of call when I actually need to think through something. And his name is Andrew Kloster, who's an attorney in Washington, D.C. He has served in various capacities in the Trump administration uh, and in January 2021 was appointed to a three-year term as council member on the Administrative Conference of the United States. Uh, He was before that uh, the associate director in White House Office of Presidential Personnel and the deputy general counsel at the United States Office of Personnel Management. There he was responsible for all aspects of executive branch personnel management, including rulemaking, related to the civil service, the vetting and selection of Senate confirmed and other officials, and appointments clause and vacancies reform act issues. Uh, Prior to that, he also served as the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and at the United States Department of Transportation. He has a long tenure in the conservative legal movement at the Scalia Law School, the Heritage Foundation, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and elsewhere. And he's published opinion pieces and law review articles in a wide variety of outlets and has appeared in various media. He's a graduate of the New York University School of Law and the University of Miami, and he clerked on the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Uh, He resides in Maryland with his wife and several sons and his bees. Uh, Andrew is just absolutely brilliant. Um, We had a fantastic, wide-ranging episode. He doesn't pull a lot of punches, and we don't necessarily agree with every single thing that he says, but we agree with a whole lot of it. Um, Once again, always a reminder, we are a 501c3 organization, so we don't take any uh, stances on candidates uh, for office, um, even though there was some discussion of some of those in this episode, um, none of them should be seen as the official stance of American Moment. But Nick, what did you make of, of all of that? Well, I was very uh, impressed with with Andrew. Um, you know, he, he and I met a couple times at events and that sort of thing, but this is the first time we've gotten to have an extended uh, conversation, and I followed him online for for a while. He's got a wild Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it rocks. I love it. Um, he, I, I just think he has such a great view, you know, holding two things at the same time. Uh, the views of the base, which he declines to define. And then also, uh, you know, what kind of the long-term strategy for the right needs to be, which he also uh, declines to define. And I think both of which there is some good... esotericism in this. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I think for good reason. I think I think he's right. All of this stuff does have to be, um, you know, all of this change that we want in our country and in the conservative movement and in our communities and in our churches and so on. Uh, it does have to be organic. It can't be planned for. Uh, it can't be paid for. Uh, it can't be bought. It can't. It just has to be organic people wanting to do things and then doing them. Um, so I think 
I certainly learned a lot today, which isn't saying much because I'm an idiot, but uh, I, I, I really, you know, admire Andrew and I think he has a lot of very important things to say, uh, especially for people who are concerned about the future of their own lives, the future of their communities and the future of the country. And with that, we'll go now to Andrew Kloster. Thanks for being on the podcast, Andrew. Thank you for having me. We always like to ask people how they got to the point where they are today. How how did you end up being the, the specialist in all the weird and wonderful things that you are today? Walk us through the trajectory. I mean, I guess I'll say since law school, I've always been interested in the right generally on the nonprofit side and public policy and law specifically. So, I mean, my, I've been very blessed to have attached myself. One of the best pieces of career advice I've ever gotten is attach yourself to a good institution. And uh, I've been blessed to work for a number of good institutions, including, you know, the Heritage Foundation right up the way where I met a lot of folks that are involved with, the, you know, the building that we're in right now when they were with, uh, then it was President DeMint of Heritage. I was, so I was there before him and uh, after him a little bit, but, uh, so yeah, I've been very blessed to work for a number of, of good institutions. Um, and just to kind of be on the legal, legal right for some time. So yeah. And, uh, clerked for a good, a good judge, uh, out on the seventh circuit in, in, uh, South Bend and was in the administration, was very blessed to meet some good people and, uh, work with people where I learned just a lot. So, you know, I'm kind of Forrest Gump of the right in many respects. I've, I've been in a very a number of lucky little places, uh, just kind of watching and seeing, and then talking with folks to help impart that crap that I've seen. So one of the early places you were at was uh, was Fire. Um, pretty soon after you graduated from law school, uh, not when David French was there. Not when David French was there. Thank God. Um, and. Uh, I, I just can't imagine what it would have been like to be at fire during that time because so much of my political awakening and I think the political awakening of a lot of people our age was specifically around the campus wars circa 2014, 15, 16. Mm -hmm. And so to be there preceding that, mm -hmm. I have to imagine was a really interesting time. What what kind of choices did some uh, did, did you make and, and decisions that you made to, to go to an organization like that Part at that time? Part of my secret sauce if there is anything and i'm not anybody prescient although I, I think i saw a lot of things before people did everybody claims that whatever but i'm about to say that i didn't actually predict anything on my own it was i went to law school at nyu so i saw all this crap before it all hit even before i went to fire and then of course i go to fire and i was hired to be their campus sexual assault person so i just love and you know, an uncontroversial beat to be whatever. On. <laughs> uh, yeah, my my view is, you know, attach yourself to a good institution and attack the choke points or attack the, you know, Thermopylae or go to the go to the choke point. Mm -hmm. One of the choke points at the time was campus sexual assault. So um, obviously at fire, I worked on free speech issues. I have a pretty long paper trail of, you know, some kid wanted a Ron Paul flag at Auburn, you know, ver you know, uh, some professor gets fired for saying something. So there's the classic First Amendment stuff. But um, at the time, my beat was taking a look at this new institution that was being built and subsidized by the Obama administration under Title IX, this new 
now it's in every campus everywhere of coordinators, really parasites on the back of the, that are hugely responsible for the increase in tuition over the last couple decades. Mm-hmm. Um, this huge new bureaucracy that has its own motives, that is not accountable to, that can always say if the, if the campus comes to them and says we need you to do something, they can say, well, it's federal law. And if the feds come and they, they can say, well, actually, it's the campus that we report to. So they serve two masters. They're completely independent and they're running roughshod over the, over the culture. So we could see that kind of happening. Um, and so my view at the time was, and this, is, this kind of fits into the, to the general conservative movement, is what is the best you can do at any given moment? And at that point in time, the best arguments you could make under the Obama administration were kind of quasi-old liberal arguments about due process and things like that. Because you're not going to win because you don't control the levers of power. People don't understand what the issues are, so you can't make more radical arguments. The best you can do is is make fair play arguments, and so that's kind of what we did on that on that issue. Um, but again, I mean, these fair play arguments are not important on their own. I think that they make sense in a context, and so today we're you know under the Trump administration, we we ha- had much many more uh, arguments open to us, and some of these fair play arguments actually were a hindrance, right? Because now you're saying we should tie our hands behind our back in terms of advancing uh, the agenda. And then now we're in a new world where we can see the glimmer of the opportunity for state power. Um, uh, and maybe we can also see how the hands being tied were a hindrance so we can actually go even further, but we're not in power. So we need to kind of like stiff arm, like everybody hold on for a minute, but we're going to go further next time. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, uh, the Trump administration and a lot of their efforts uh, on this issue and, and many others um, to use uh, uh, Madam Saki phrase. Uh, let's circle back to that uh, and tell us more about, you know, your time, your role in the Trump administration, um, what it was like. Uh you know, you uh, were working in uh, the Office of Presidential Personnel. Uh, we talk a lot about personnel, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a lot of, uh, you know, we view the issues uh, with the Trump administration more because of that. So, I mean, tell us, you were in on the inside. Tell mm-hmm. uh, tell us what it was like. So, I was a few places in the administration. I was a lawyer. I, uh, in terms of attaching myself to a good institution, the first place that I went was... Um, and so I did a late career, mid-career clerkship. And so I left and I'd promised the judge that I was going to work for him two years in advance. So I kind of knew that I would be held hostage from the campaign season. So I missed out on the early campaign. I missed out on the beginning of the Trump administration. And I fly in in the middle of 2017. Um, and I had seen some of the issues with the Trump admin already. And I'd seen some very good people and some very bad people and some big issues here and there. And I thought to myself, okay, what's the best I can do today for myself and for the movement generally? And I parachuted into the Department of Transportation's general counsel's office as one of two lawyers with like several hundred attorneys sort of in that chain of command throughout the agency, um, but only two political supervisors at the time, myself and then the, the acting general counsel at the time. So um, I guess my reason for going there was to learn as much as I could about classic agency law. Um, I always had an interest in administrative law, and that was a great opportunity to see a marquee shop with massive regulatory authority, very good career attorneys, 
and bureaucrats um, and a secretary, Elaine Chow, who could could manage. Um, there were many ups and downs to that whole experience, but I learned a lot. And so from there, uh, I left to go to the Scalia Law School for a time with their uh, Boyden, C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, which is a great small shop that does sort of academic study. I went there and put on a, a number of events and symposia with Adam White, who's the director. He gave me a long leash, and uh, we were able to put together interesting uh, things uh, that went beyond the kind of old shibboleths about the administrative law. So instead of just talking about deference, like if I have to read another paper about Chevron deference, I'll <laughs> shoot myself or something. Um, like it's so boring. Uh, we put on stuff about granular areas. And one we put on was personnel and political control and management. Another was on immigration generally. And these were not partisan. We had left and right people. But but the idea was, you know, to kind of take a more aggressive look at, at different bureaucratic issues. So we were the first to hire Adam Candube to I commissioned a paper for him to do on 230. And now 230 is a big thing. Yeah. We then hired him into the admin when I was there. Um, so we helped kind of push that uh, and a lot of other little issues like that. So I, I want to zero in a little bit on on that first uh, admin position you had, because I think that, you know, in some ways that, that was Department of Transportation, correct? Uh, it, it's so secular in the sense that, you know, DOT is not where any of the sexy, sexy issues the right really cares about other than no, infrastructure. It should, been, it should have been. Exactly. And so that that's that's what I'm really interested in is is what opportunities you know, at, at a broad level, you know, don't give away any state secrets. Did you see that we were just dropping the ball? Every on? agency under the Trump admin had the same missed opportunities at the highest level, which was we outsourced hiring and uh, ideology and policy to the libertarian wing of the party completely, completely dropped the ball. And a lot of this there were reasons for it. I don't think this mistake will be made a second time. Maybe we didn't have the farm team in place, but every single agency had the same thing play out. So at DOT, I mean, this was supposed to be, uh, I mean, it, every week was infrastructure week. This was supposed to be an infrastructure presidency. Um, you know, I come from a, my dad worked for the railroads. I'm very pro rail. I understand the industry. I understand different competing factions. I'm not saying you play even right now with the infrastructure issues you have. You don't necessarily pick favorites between, you know, shippers and the rail lines, whatever, you know, and intermediary lease companies. You don't you don't typically you don't need to play favorites, but you do need to recognize the reality of our moment. And it was just thing after thing after thing. It was well, okay, highways. How about we do tolling? It's like or rail. Um well, we can't be we can't play favorites. Well, our, and I've written about this, our entire federal transportation system is about subsidizing highways. Um, so saying we're not playing favorites in an, in an environment where uh, we are subsidizing one mode is essentially playing favorites. So we had opportunity to work on rail and things like that. I was, for a time, I was uh, essentially the the chief counsel at Federal Transit Administration um, and... Uh, you know, we had many issues with CIG, these different grant programs and things like that. And it was just it was quite, quite libertarian. It wasn't Michael Lind, you know, uh, it was it was more on the uh, 
you know, Manhattan Institute uh, sort of bandwagon. That was one missed. That was one kind of, I think, big missed opportunity because the president at the time, President Trump, had a coalition that depended on infrastructure being a major initiative. And instead, we got tax cuts for the rich, which was a problem. I think it, it hurt him electorally. So and that happened in every agency. I should say every agency had this divide. Some agencies actually, maybe not State Department, because the State Department, the, the divide is between the sort of Wilsonian liberals and the neocons. Mm -hmm. And what is a libertarian? I mean, there are no libertarians <laughs> in the State Department. Um, you tried to put one at the end, yeah. <laughs> you know, Will Ruger. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's right. But he yeah. would have actually probably played very, very nice with the Wilsonians. I mean, as a general rule, the old realistic liberals who would say, well, you can't be everywhere at once. And so they wouldn't say, I'm an isolationist, but he wouldn't say he's an isolationist either. And so I think they would have gotten along and he would have been butting heads a lot more with the neocons. Right. So, yeah. Um, walk us through kind of the composition, as you saw, of especially the first two years of the Trump administration at every agency. You know, was it, you know, one third kind of corporate lobbyists, one third neocon, one third libertarian? What what what, what kind of were the major factions as represented in the in the political? It's hard to say because you don't step in the same river twice. And many people moved. I'm seeing people sitting at this table who have moved politically, um, people in this building that have moved politically, uh, you know, people who were strongly opposed to candidate Trump who are now strongly in his corner, at least facially. And there are people like Nikki Haley. So I'm not comparing you guys to Nikki Haley. Uh, I'm just saying it's hard to say what the composition was because at the time, it would be one thing, but there are a lot of good people that sit down and say, I'm totally supportive of the president. But when you checklist what that means to them and what that might mean to different parts of the base is totally different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have the strongest supporter of the president at the Department of Energy and you can say, you know, who's your, you know, Trump is my favorite and you it's totally credible. They volunteered on the campaign. They did this. And then they'll say, well, the most important thing is like, you know. Uh, we can't subsidize the coal industry. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. Or, uh, and my favorite candidate for 2024 is Nikki Haley. You know what I mean? Like, but they still are totally on side. So it's it's hard to, you can't pigeonhole people. There are, We have many, many good people. You go to battle with the team that you have and it's really hard to pigeonhole people. I think you need to ask, not where they're libertarian. It's just, what are the factions in that building on a specific issue? What are your goals and how do you attack it from different angles? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You encounter these people, I think, a lot on the institutional right in D.C. who are like, yeah, I love Trump. My biggest issues are like tax cuts for the rich and like, you know, not spending money on like worthless local programs. And then uh, and then they. <laughs> then you're like, oh, okay, so you like like Trump's style, right? Like you like that he, you know, attacks the left in this way. And they're like, well, no, the tweets are kind of dumb. And you discover that they really actually don't believe in anything. They like to be kind of on the winning team. I think that's right? right. There are a lot of those people. So uh, one of the things that we did at the Office of Presidential Personnel, you know, OPP or PPO, depending on how, is we did set up, and I was a part of that, a very robust, I don't know if you've had people talk about this, interview process with all of our political personnel. And so I handled a ton of agencies where I sat down for hours with people over days and I interviewed every single person from the, you know, secretary in some cases on down to the GS7. Uh, 
asking these questions. And I did find very quickly exactly what you said, which is one of the how do you how do you identify someone who's not on the team? Uh, well, there are many ways. One way is to say, well, what do you, and maybe I'm giving away the secret sauce. I don't want to, uh, you know, what are your career, where do you want to go in the government? Like what kind of promotion do you want? Well, I want to work in state department or treasury. I want to work in international finance. <laughs> like, like I think I could best serve the president by working wherever I get to travel a ton and deal with bankers. Yeah. It's like, mm, buddy. Okay. <laughs> That's number one. Number two is when you ask them, what are your favorite aspects of the Trump policies deregulation and judges deregulation and judges is a shell of an answer because it doesn't mean anything it, it means i can't pick a policy i'm too weak to pick a policy but i can tell you something that everyone will agree with deregulation and judges it doesn't mean anything but that's where we are on the right we're on autopilot um it's it's funny because the, the example you laid out of the person who can't name a single thing they actually like about President Trump is, you know, it's a blatant and it's an easy one. The one that we've run into occasionally that's much harder, I find, is people who were OG 2015-16 supporters of President Trump, but who aren't actually there on the policy, mm -hmm. which is, that's that's a weird thing because I do think people who who got it early deserve a certain amount of deference. But if they're not at all aligned on immigration, trade, foreign policy, any of this stuff, then how do you how do you even think about it? And yeah. so so with the people that answer deregulation and judges, a lot of that is sort of autopilot, sort of button-down corporate conservatism. Does that count as loyalty? Uh, I think the first thing you need to hire for is loyalty. Um, loyalty is a stand-in for... Um, willingness to listen to authority, to follow the rules, um, to not run to the media, uh, to do all of these sorts of things. Um, and honestly, you can do more with one of those OG supporters than just about anybody else, even if they're wrong, because they can learn. You can learn. The funny thing is, is you can learn policy. You can't learn loyalty. Um, so I'm very supportive of those people. That's our base. You have to treat them well. Um, they should be rewarded. But at the same time, you're right. So I think there's, what are you loyal to? Me, myself, I kind of, in that Venn diagram, loyalty to Trump, loyalty to ideology, probably am in the middle to a large degree. But frankly, my gravitational side is more towards the ideology. Um, and I think for you guys, for a lot of people that would listen to you would be the same sort of a thing. It's trying to understand and recognize our moment where we are politically um, but Trump is a fact of life. The the thing I people need to realize, you deal with the battlefield that you have and you deal with the team that you have and you can't have it perfect. Trump is a elephant in the room. He's a candidate um, with Trump. His family it comes and you can't deal. You, you, know, you can't throw that away either. I'm not saying any of this is good or bad. It's just a fact of life. Trump is a candidate. I think he's going to be a candidate again. He's probably going to win. So what do you do? You can't gripe about it, okay? What do you do about the family? You can't gripe about it. What do you do with these supporters? You can't gripe about it. These are facts. These are facts we have to deal with. So deal with the facts you have. No, and I think that's basically exactly right. And that's why I find it, I found it very frustrating in the months after the administration. You know, th there was a certain kind of person who was very sympathetic to the worldview elements of the stuff we talk about on this show, but was breathing a sigh of relief on two basic metrics. One, 
orange man gone. Thank God. I don't have to defend him anymore. And then two, oh, wow, multi-ethnic working class coalition. I don't have to be afraid and nervous that we have a majority white party anymore. That's so exciting, too. Like these are the two things that were because they were the two things they were most embarrassed about, even as they held this other worldview. And now they don't get to anymore. And I, and I tell them every time I'm like, you're missing the point. If you don't understand why the base loved President Trump as much as he does uh, or they do and did um that that's that's there, there's a meta political aspect to all these policy questions that has to be understood and there's no version of trump that can come onto the scene in 2015-16 that believes all of these things on immigration trade and foreign policy and goes anywhere without the bombast without the willingness to just break through i don't know i mean how, how do you think about that um you're asking the question why the middle of the country is so loyal. I was meeting with a friend that I'm sure you guys know recently who lives out in the Midwest and talks about how these people will, quote, take a bullet for Trump. Still, they have their signs up. Still. I live in Maryland, everywhere from Hagerstown through Pennsylvania and Ohio and Indiana, all the way to Chicago, including South Bend. The signs are still up. The people will take a bullet for Trump personally. Um, some of that's ideological. Some of that's the style. Um, you can't define it. You can't define charisma. And I'm just sick of people trying to define charisma. He has charisma. He did something for them. They see him. They're loyal to him. There's an organic thing there. I'm not going to define it. He's a fact of life. Other people don't have that. They come in. They're too cerebral. Um, whatever. You, you just, you can't fake that. So, um, he's, I hope he rekindles his energy. Um, I think he's a fact of life. And I've, I were advising people, you guys, everybody, it would be. So I worked on the first list and I introduced a friend of mine who was a clerk for my judge to A.G. Meese and those people and helped set up and work on that list. And um, and that guy ended up being the White House, the associate White House counsel that did that did nominations uh, for judges so I was involved very early and what was the list? The list was the corporate Coke wing of the party saying, um, many of us are unsold. You know, we don't know who to go with. We like Hillary. We like the Republican, the traditional Republican stuff. If you want our support, if you want our money, if you don't want us to attack you relentlessly, you need to agree before you're the nominee to X, Y, and Z. And he agreed. And I mean, they delivered barely. Right. Um, and this was the list of the Supreme list of judges, Court Supreme Court nominees. Right. OK, so that was. And it worked for the base to the extent to the extent that the base was still co-opted mentally by these sort of thought leaders that would then turn around and say, uh, you can support Trump. OK, so well, what I, we need on the right is the same thing in the lead up to 2024. We need more Ann Coulter's, not people that are blowing themselves up like Ann Coulter, <laughs> not directly attacking Trump and saying, I hate him. And then he doesn't pick up her calls or whatever. But I mean, the Jenny Thomas type folks, the you guys, you know, CPI heritage. We need people to be talking and setting down clear markers and saying, you know, Coke, for example, speaking of Will again, his people should be talking with the Trump campaign people at some point and saying, great, if you promise to renominate Will, you know, in 2025, you know, we will support you. X, y. Like we need these we need this is retail politics that needs to occur, period. 
So you mentioned uh, thought leaders. I think it's awfully generous to call them that. Uh, you know, it's it's it's. Um, I think we do sort of have like a death of imagination on the right. I mean, there's not really. Um, aside from groups like us, you know, American Compass, CPI, a lot of these other organizations, there's not a lot of new creative thought happening about the kinds of policies we should be pursuing, how we pull those levels or levers of power, um, how we build power, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, how do we infuse the right with, with this sort of imagination uh, as to as to kind of how we get in there and we start building power um, instead of just you know paying a ton of money to judges. yeah yeah paying a bunch of money to to yeah. deregulate and well I think nominate. I I'm just gonna say you can't define these sorts of things I think this is the same with you can't define charisma and I don't think you can define a life cycle everything has a life cycle. The conservative movement has had a life cycle. I think we're already past that sort of. It's dead. Like it was. What was it? We're doing a. We're doing an autopsy at this point. What was this thing? And it's on the table. We've got our knives out. What was this it, thing? It, and it, how it, did it I die? Confirmation, or it will end with whatever happens in Dobbs. But I it's think. it's gone. Yeah. It's dead. Yeah. Okay. What comes next? Well, we've got people like you guys, um, and there's a whole spectrum. But there are many, many young people. Maybe it skipped my generation. I'm a millennial, an older millennial, but there are younger millennials and there are people in the Zoomer category. And I think that is those people have been reading. Many of them have, you know, already starting to get jobs in different places. I'm not confident that one can define and say, how do we do this? It's just going to grow on its own. These are people who are more concerned with health and eating right and having families. And that's that is the correct thing to be doing. Um, and then out of that will grow something over time. So I'm not necessarily thinking that we can define precisely what we need to be doing. The thing that we're looking for is unconscious. It's it's already moving. It's a living thing. It's the movement in general in toto. Um, and I'm very happy to see it. We have this energy. At what point is it going to hit? It's going to hit when it's supposed to hit. I mean, is it going to be, are we going to miss an opportunity? Are we ever going to get elected again? You know, the presidency. I don't care about the, pre like, Anyways, the American politics could completely change. Is the country going to break up? I'm not going to go into all of that, but right. So, well, actually, I would like to go into 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 something about that. You know, I I, I did want to ask you about your um, you know, for people who haven't read it already, uh, you know, they should absolutely subscribe to your to your Substack. But you wrote a piece about uh, the the national divorce and your kind of thoughts around that. Yeah. I'll just let you talk about it. Well, I mean, uh, is it cope? I've yeah. no, and I've I've. I thought, should I have even written that? Because I do have a rule, which is I don't attack to the right. I don't think that was an attack to the right, to no. be honest, um, at all, at all. So uh, I think if you look at the right, uh, the people that are genuinely on the right, they're concerned with all of the reasons that I laid out about national divorce as a concept uh, in that it encourages people to, it's like a lottery. You're encouraging people to pin their hopes on something far away and national and random it's the opposite of my sort of rules for radical patriots kind of targeted boomer um, instructions, which is which is things you can do today. So national divorce is distant, abstract, not something that you can do. It's not within your control. And it actually affirmatively prevents you from doing these sorts of things. Now, the response to that, which is like and, and David Reboy and others have, 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 have said, you know, this is just uh, propaganda. It's just rhetoric. 
But rhetoric's important, and we shouldn't be having people pin their hopes on something far away and distant. So Claremont is interesting. Uh, you know, I've never, you know, they're on the right to an extent. Um, yeah. I like them. <laughs> uh, well, and, and it's funny because the episode that just came out uh, last week as, as we recorded was with Michael Anton, who's been talking about a lot of this stuff. I, I do think that the, the point that I saw you make, which was most compelling in the piece about the national divorce, was that it's vitality sapping, that that it's sort of an, a way to you know, siphon away useful energy where, where it could be used for, I mean, it's political pornography in some ways, um, uh, if, if you're going to make an analogy. And, and that I, that's something that I, I worry about a lot because I think that it's also a lot of the issues with some of online right-wing ecosystems is that they create an incentive structure and kind of a hamster wheel in, unto themselves where there's no output for the energy in terms of actual uh, sustained political action. Um, Although I, I, I do find some of the stuff that you're saying about how, you know, this movement on the right um, has to be organic and emergent, while also saying that a lot of the issues that we had in the lead up to President Trump's election and then subsequently during the administration was a lack of coordination. Right. Um, how, do, how do you kind of reconcile those two thoughts? I mean, obviously you have somehow. So how, how do you think about it that? It all needs to happen at the same time. Um Everyone needs to know their place and everyone needs to operate within their space. So when I say it needs to be organic, I'm talking to specifically to staffers, to members of the public that are watching this. What can you do? You need to do something. Uh, so that's my, my list of my list of outputs. You know, talk with your family, talk with your neighbors, exercise, eat well, uh, control what you watch, control what you eat. Volunteer at your local clerk's office as an election official. Learn how that process works. Run for local office. You know, exercise, okay? And then exercise your politics as well. Organize a group about your local issues. Do the school board thing, CRT, whatever. So baby steps. So everyone needs to do their space. Now, if you're a well-connected person with donors and you're helping run electoral politics, or fund C3s, um, you do need the coordination as well and flex within your space there. So it's it's not, uh, there's no contradiction. It's just to whom am I speaking at the moment? And that's not esotericism. It's, it's genuinely within your sphere, do whatever you can to the maximal extent that you can. Uh, I think our, we had a lack of coordination among people who were purported thought leaders at the time. Um, and we didn't even have it, actually. I mean, when I say lack of coordination, we didn't even have it. I mean, who would have been? Anyways, our outgoing personnel office was a number of very good people that had been well positioned. We had no cord. Like we find each other like, holy crap, like you're a very good person who's right on message. You're a very good person who's right on message. All of these people and they kind of came together organically. And now we're out in the world doing things and we still have that network. Um, that was not something that could have been planned. We didn't have that. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to blame. The machine has worked the way the machine is supposed to. We had transition planning in 2016 that involved, and I've read all these documents, recommendations by many people, and it worked as it was supposed to. So you can't, it wasn't evil. You know, the machine was just set up wrong. And we're working to fix it now. 
And that's just an aging process. You guys are older now. Where were you four years ago? Where were you five years ago? <laughs> yeah, so we can't, you know, why wasn't Saurabh doing this? Why wasn't Nick doing this? Because you were in college, okay? So. <laughs> um, what was the, the best case scenario for what you guys could have done with a Trump term too? I mean, at the risk of being excommunicated, there were huge upsides to, to and again, at the risk of being excommunicated for saying the word losing the election, <laughs> uh, um, I will just say, I was thinking about this as it was happening. And I thought to myself, we need a reckoning. The political reckoning that ought to have occurred in 2017 never occurred. And it has to occur before the next election, I think, period. If we had limped through somehow, especially if it was the some sort of stupid legal fight where it goes up and then we won and thank God the lawyers were here, um, <laughs> that would have been the worst of all worlds yeah. because he would have won, but the people who would have had all the juice... It's amazing yeah. to me. Anybody could have done the impeachment stuff. Oh, they did such a good job on the impeachment stuff. Any lawyer could have phoned that in, but these people in the White House get all this juice with Trump and with other people. Uh, oh, they did such a good job defending the president. It's like, did you watch the same thing? Like, this is extremely easy. It was a political fight. The votes were there. You just had to hold the line, blah, blah, blah. Sure, you know, you prepared. It would have been the same thing on steroids. And so the, all the wrong people would have gotten all the kudos for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And it would have led to, even though we would have won, we would have lost. It would have been a perfect victory. Especially if it all shook out in like a 5-4 Supreme Court victory. Like if that's what did so it. it's totally like, hamstrung. Yeah. You know, anyways, he was totally hamstrung from the get-go as it was. Yeah, if your movement relies on like lawyers winning and then cheering them after, I, I would probably say that you're in serious trouble. Well, but I mean, <laughs> they, they are a... They are part of that ecosystem that you would need, yes. right? I mean, you need people who know how to read statutes and like make things happen, but they Someone can't. Someone firebombs or sits in, and the National Lawyer Guild Lawyers Guild shows up and has free lawyers for them all the time. Mm -hmm. So lawyers are useful. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, because if if uh, if the right does any equivalent of that, the, uh, that lawyer would promptly be disbarred, arrested, and you know prosecuted. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's no donor who's willing to donate to them. Yeah. And there's nobody willing to stick their neck out. I mean, look what happened to John Eastman, or yeah, is is happening to, to John yeah. Eastman, yeah. Yeah. for, and I and I've said this and I'll say it again. His argument, at the the most minimum thing that you can say is that the argument that the vice president had some legal authority there is at least controversial. It's not like, ooh, it's settled that it's unlawful, yeah. which is what people are... So they're making it like some disbarable offense, which it's is plausible. insane. Yeah. It's plausible. I actually think it's correct. Mm -hmm. I don't have to say that. I can say not only is it correct, it's plausible. Not only is it plausible, but it's not unreasonable. Mm -hmm. It's not unreasonable to say what he said. Mm -hmm. um, now, some of the other politics stuff, you know, should he have done this or that? Look, I don't know, but... But that's what happens when one person sticks their head out even a little bit. Yeah. Multiply that by 15 million. I have lawyers on my various projects that I'm working on that are not willing to help on X, Y, or Z. Um, certainly on the record. I mean, good people, people whose names you would know uh, because they're afraid. And some of their firms, even marquee sort of conservative-leaning firms, are just scared, very scared. Yeah. Um, so it may have been better that the that we lost in in 20. Um, and so come 24, 28, what is the best case scenario for what the right could use the administrative state for? 
you know, that extended bureaucracy that, that, that they have access to, that they've seemed to have just left to, to the, I think the best thing that we can do is, um, I can't tell you what the best thing that we can do is without a vision for where we're going. And I don't want to put that vision out there. Um, yeah, but, but, um, I can, at a bare minimum, I can say, um, the best we can do on the right in the lead up to the election is to put down hard markers and negotiate in retail politics so that going into that election, even before it occurs, all of our people have the same incentives. Retail politics, haggling, um, you know, gimmies, right, patronage is about getting people lined up in a row. They all need to point at the same direction. And so you haggle. If we win this, you get 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 this. Okay, we're all going to do it. And the intensity matters. So if someone's risking more, they get more, more. If someone's bringing more to the table but risking less, like it's all an equation, of course, but they're all pointing in the same direction. So we need to be in the same direction for 2024 where we know what the election means and we can all fight in the same direction. So when would you say was the last time that the right did this, like Hmm. our portion of the Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. for our priorities? Because it seems to me that this was not like... Never. I mean, not in recent memory, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, 72? I, mean, well, I mean, going back, yeah, historically, like how yeah. far back do you have well, I mean, to the last time we even tried a little bit was, was Buchanan's campaign, um, where he completely got screwed over by the moral majority. Mm-hmm. So actually, that was a moment where people like, you know, Pat Robertson and, and those folks um, sold out social conservatives, mm-hmm. saying that they weren't, but they did. And so we've act- actually had a hostile a hostile sort of corporate wing for some period of time. I don't even think it was even that bad in the Reagan administration. It was it was the it was uh, the Clinton years and the Bush Bush one years that were the worst. Mm. And then the chickens really came home to roost during uh, the George W. Bush years. But 9-11 was a big boon to kind of hiding the fault lines. Uh, and you have other things you can blame. You know, the economics uh, can be blamed on other external factors. So at the risk of saying 2024 needs to be, I won't, I'll just say it. It needs to be about highlighting and heightening the contradictions within the movement for 2024. It needs to happen. And the other side, the other side is the sort of button down corporate wing will be trying to smooth them over. So they'll try to glide path to a very watered down. Mm. We need to win because why? I don't know why, but we need to win because Biden is ruining with all of his regulation and big government socialism ruining America and that's why Republicans need to win any candidate who says that and settles on that or any pack should be like excommunicated yeah to use that'd be that'd be very word. nice yeah that'd be very nice <laughs> yes how much of because you mentioned the social conservatives how much of this is a construction I've been using a lot lately how much of you know what needs to be done in the coming years do you see as social conservatives reasserting their rightful place as the primary engine of the American right. Yeah. I I don't know what the, the funny thing is, is well, I, I, I probably come from it as a social conservative, probably first and foremost. And at least that's where I was able to see why things are not working. Cause if you look at it from a, so like even back when I was at heritage, 20, 
16 before the election and the lead up candidate Trump says something about abortion and women and people like Ryan Anderson, whom I like, were like, oh, he's ruining 40 years of success. What are you talking about? 30, 40 years of success. What are you talking about? What success? What are you talking about? So if you're looking at it and coming at it from a social conservative perspective, you can kind of see some of these things. Does it need to be, in, do they need to be in the driver's seat? No, but you need, they need to be healthy as a partner. Like I said, everyone needs to be lined up in the same direction and the terms need to be made public. The problem, our dysfunction was that the contract between these political groups was never public. The leaders of the social conservative movement were getting kickbacks and payments from, you know, big tech and other groups, foreign governments, things like that. And then they would go back to their base and say, we're delivering on social conservatism. That's part of the big disconnect. So does it mean that social conservatives need to be in the driver's seat? No. I think there are many issues. Gay marriage, you know, might be one of them where it's like, is this the fight that we want to be having? So I'm not I'm not going to throw that out there and say I think we shouldn't have that fight, but it doesn't mean that social conservatives need to win every battle, but it does mean they need to be cognizant of what they want. Right. Well, it, here's the thing is, is, you know, social conservatism, I hate to have to like say this, but it almost doesn't mean anything anymore to like what anyone. Yes. Like, like, so social conservatism, does it mean the end of no fault divorce? No. Does it mean defining marriage as between a man and a woman well no not that either does it mean you know federally uh banning abortion no it doesn't mean that either what does it mean what does it stand okay. for and what are we going to do to protect it you know i i i just think that so many people and organizations not talking about people in like our portion of the right of course but so many people in other sections of the right that have sold out social conservatism every single step of the way and i think people are pissed but they're also scared because i mean you 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 see these surveys where people are like called and they're like all right you know we know that you're a conservative evangelical that lives in like western wisconsin uh you know do you support gay marriage uh yeah definitely totally do Meanwhile, if you were like a neighbor that that talked to them about this, I'd be like, "Yeah, I can't, I can't handle that," you know. So I just, I just think we've totally. I say this as a social conservative who believes in all the things that I just mentioned. So what do you mean by so? I think this is exactly on point. The question is what we mean by social conservative. There is a social conservative movement. I think that's totally worthless. Totally worthless. The movement. Totally. As a movement, totally worthless. It's got David French. I mean. It's fake and it's not, I don't really think it's worth anything. And I say that as someone who is traditional social conservative on all of these checklist of issues. Mm -hmm. So maybe what we're not looking at is social conservatism, but we're looking at traditional American ways of life. What is it that supports traditional American ways of life? Because that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but at least it's kind of granular. You know, it's something a little more concrete, it still can be vague, but I still when you say traditional American ways of life, you still kind of know what you mean yeah. to some degree. Yeah. So there's the movement and then there's the actual thing itself. The thing itself has value, but the people who support that are not connected to the political process in a way that is advantageous to what they want. Well, in the, in the, in the thing and the way of living itself is 
so prominent. I mean, all over the country, yes. there 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 are people living this way. Whereas when you see it, yeah. yeah. Whereas the 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 movement, right, or like where people give money to, uh, to to work on some of these issues is like, it's just it's spread very thin. I think intentionally. So I always um, I always blame the donors. And I mean I I mean I don't. But some of that is, yeah. you know, you've got small businessmen who don't who are very good people who have built a business who want to donate to you guys or anybody else. And I don't want to dump on any of them in particular. I'll just say generally um, they want to give money in a way with a certain set of principles attached to it that sometimes doesn't always lead to what they want in the long run. And it's hard to tell these type of people no and say, actually, you know, this button down guy who you love and who's on TV a lot isn't the best person spokesperson for X, Y, or Z, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, we're going to read your uh, rules for radical patriots later, but I did just want to highlight the rule number five. I will donate my time to causes before I donate money. I will not write a check and consider my job done. And I think that there are a couple, uh, you know, practical outputs of that specifically that you have to give something more than just writing a check. It's like more than just minimum effort. But I think also an important thing is, is that when you're giving time, you're also finding out how legitimate that candidate or cause is. And that's not something you can know by just writing a check. And most of and, and, and the financial reports, you know, it's all going to be, you know, mystified as to what your money went to. If you spend a couple hours of your day, you're I mean, you're going to know. Yeah. What those. I think that's exactly right. And so I didn't use the phrase skin in the game. I'm not stealing anybody's ideas or whatever, but it is about, you know, um, you want to be there. You want to see everything. You're invested and you have a better understanding of it. Um, I think that's all correct. One of the issues where social conservatives have been betrayed writ large is abortion. Um, I, 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 I got blackpilled on this when I was actually at the state level. Like I remember six years ago being in the Texas legislature and having to, to regularly like advocate against all of the institutional pro-life and social conservative groups who were saying that a heartbeat bill was not part of their SCOTUS strategy. Like every single one, the mm-hmm. conservative ones and the moderate ones alike. And, uh, it, 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 I, I, it was the earliest thing I got blackpilled on when it came to the conservative movement. And so I ended up just spending most of my like pro-life time, like painting pregnancy resource centers, because I thought that that was a better use than participating in any of what actually existed. Well, um, and it is, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's totally true. Um, well, it's the one thing like guys can do at a pregnancy resource center is like yeah. help paint and like repair stuff. Um, but uh, there are some interesting things going on in that space, specifically um, a bill that was recently passed in Texas that relies on a legal mechanism um, that you turned me on to probably months, years ago at this point. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and why you consider it a good sign? Um, so I'll just preface by saying, as with everything, I'm not white pilled on it. I don't think it's the end of the story. I don't think that it's, but the idea is, um, and I'm forgetting all of a sudden blanking on who the person was that wrote it. Brian Hughes or well, the, the legislator or the, uh, lawyer, the wrote. lawyer, the, wrote. Oh, I'm forgetting his name. He was, uh, wasn't, I believe he was an Alito clerk. Wasn't Jonathan Mitchell. Was it? It might've been. Yeah. I think it might've been Jonathan yeah, Mitchell yeah. who, by the way, is representing Roger Severino in the case because Roger and I were on the administrative conference of the United States appointed by the president 
and we were the first firing this. And so there's a reasonable challenge. And I think Jonathan is the person that's handling that for Roger, who's at EPPC. So I think it's Jonathan. Smart. It's a smart move. And what it does is it says, um, you know, basically a private individual in the state of Texas who gets information about an abortionist who is violating the law has an ability to sue to enforce the law. Great. And that individual get can get money, can get a prize, basically. Um, set aside the constitutional stuff because there are reasons why the thought is that this could evade review or maybe that wasn't the thought. I'm not saying that was the thought. And if anybody's paying attention, my view as to whether that was the purpose and intent behind the law is not relevant to the legality of the law. Let's just say this. Um, it leverages the trial bar. And I think that's an important thing. Um, we've always said no new causes of action. You know, when I was at Heritage, I helped run their civil justice. So we'd get money from these corporations to basically say uh, class actions are terrible. The you know, patent trolls are awful. The sky is falling and it's billions of dollars and everyone could be making a hundred thousand dollars a year in the country, including McDonald's employees. If only it weren't for those damn lawyers. Wrong, wrong. And we can leverage the trial bar to our advantage and they're big donors and they're typically left wing, but there, there are advantages to having laws in many contexts where we deputize, they're called private attorney general's actions or whatever to deputize individuals to enforce the law. Um, this is not something that we typically do in American law, but it's totally, it totally makes sense. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful about it. I think it's an interesting model. So I think this conversation rocks, by the way. <laughs> like, I love this. Um, so, uh, you know, after uh, uh, this this ban, uh, I, or I think that a lot of uh, pro-life conservatives were, I was seeing this a lot, at least on Twitter, were like, oh, we can't do it that way. <laughs> People, bounty hunters. Yeah. Listen, I'm not going to name names. There were, there were plenty like of it people. What weapon you bring to the table, they're going to say that's not a good one. It's like, okay, they've got a gun. Can I use this one? No, it's fully automatic. Can you use this one? No, that's semi-automatic. Can I use this one? No, that's too old. Like, yeah, the, pick the, the only moral way to ban abortion, according to certain people, is for David French to give sermons atop mountains across the country, convincing everyone that it's the right choice not to do it. That's the only way. We cannot make laws. <laughs> so, so anyway, that that beside the point. I mean, I'm gonna let you get on your soapbox here. Why do these people love to lose? What, like, what, what is it? I mean, I I'm sure that part of your answer is that it's a combination of corporations not wanting to win and people not actually believing in anything. But really, like, what? Why are these people married to us losing instead of using these tools that we have to win on an issue that we purport to be passionate about? There are many answers to that question. Um, it's something about the time period that we're in, the stage in our republic that we're in. That's part of it, certainly. Um, I think the story of the conservative movement in a soundbite is trying to leverage formal rules to make up for a lack of animal spirits, trying to use formal rules on the books to make up for a lack of conviction or or blood. Mm. Um, so they'll say, uh, you know, let's, you know, what's the problem with America? And I might say, you know, nobody's going to church. I might give you a laundry list of stuff. Nobody's going to church. Nobody's having kids. Nobody wants to live. And they might say, well, the problem is we're not following the Constitution. 
right? So we don't have enough rules. <laughs> yeah, we're not following the Constitution. We don't have enough rules, you know. Yeah, so it's uh, I think it's it's really hard to to put it into a soundbite, but we can all we can all see that there's a certain set that is our base to a certain extent. They live orthopractically. They live reasonably good lives. They adopt children. They go to church. They have children. Uh, you know, uh, they're faithful to their spouses. They work every day. They pay their taxes. They're our base, presumably. They're living an American life. Uh, anyways, I can give you the, all the laundry list, and yet... They don't have the killer instinct when it comes to X, Y, Z because they expect other people to think the way that they do. So part of it is they expect other people to think that the way that they do. So my mother, my grandmother, they would always shame people, you know, but there's a certain set of people that would say, well, it's not your problem. Like the child is naked running around. It's not your kid. Shh, like you can think about it, but don't, it's not your problem. It is your problem. It's everybody's problem. Everybody in this country is everybody's problem. Um, and that kind of English liberal view of kind of uh, mind your own business is a liability at this point. So some of it is these are genuine liberals, like genuine American liberals, which is genuinely a part of our tradition where we're like live or let live, man. Like if you want to, I've heard this, I don't know. We've all heard this a thousand times. Everybody tells us this, usually, you know, boomer donors, right? Uh, you know, if you want to live in your house and smoke pot and ha be gay and da da da, that's all okay, right? And they say that. Like, I don't, uh, you know, live it like me personally, I don't agree with any of that. But, you know, if you're having an abortion, like, live and let live. Like, that is a very American, that is, again, goes back to my point, deal with the team that you've got. That's a, that is our country. So, well, and I'd like to point out too that I think that worked when we were a country of like 8 million instead of like, you know, 380 million. And there were also a lot fewer people that were engaging in this kind of activity. Um, we've changed as a country. And so I think to just say, oh, well, this was, you know, our original political thought and the constitution says, you know, X, Y, and Z. So we're just going to do that. I mean, it's, I agree times. Yeah. Times times have changed. What you're doing there, though, is you're saying, I see the nation. You're now outside the nation. You're analyzing it. The thing is dead. You're saying this is what America is. Because if you were there 80 years ago, you wouldn't be saying, what is it? You'd be like, no, 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 no. I'm going to have my Tupperware party. I'm going to volunteer at the VFW. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go get my car. John down the street got a new Ford. I want a new Ford. You're living it. Now you're stepping apart from it. Because the phenomenon is yeah. is gone. You've analyzed it. So it's almost that was what was. Mm -hmm. These people, they're not going to be here in a generation. They're already the David French's of the world. Their arguments are just air. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I think what's worth noting, you know, David French aside, a lot of these other people, especially institutions that are just pushing out this like libertarian pipe dream content all day uh if we're going to talk about you know political realities and why people are motivated to do things th those people jd vance said it at uh at uh that was the isi conference been to so many dang conferences i hardly keep them all straight but i mean these people who don't have a stake in the future of their society 
that deserve to be ridiculed he's, and not listened to. He's good and he gets it and he's going to be attacked invariably and it's going to be a t- an attack from the right. It's going to be a a weird attack that's going to be like you're not you're not conservative enough. Like you're not genuinely conservative enough. And so you're going to get a lot of these people that we were just talking about who are going to support Mandel and they're going to justify it in their own mind by saying Vance is not conservative enough. When the recognition of what you're talking about, about social policy, family policy, industrial policy, the death of our country, Vance is far to the right. If he concedes on we need marginally higher taxes or we need this, that does not put him on the left. That does not put him on the left. He is to the right of every candidate in that race and in most races in this country. And But the liars are going to come out and say he's on the left because... He doesn't support something stupid. I don't know what it's going to be yet. So I'm just flagging that for you. They're going to try to position him as the soft candidate, which is absolutely insane. Well, it's going to be an interesting couple of years to see uh, when uh, a thousand flowers bloom, which ones end up uh, (laughs) capturing the passions of the base. Um, And and speaking of that base, I did want to give you a chance to to describe a little bit about why you wrote uh, one of our favorite pieces that you've ever written, which is Rules for Radical Patriots. Uh, The subtitle is Boomer Posting. Uh, We'll read these all uh, in in kind of uh, glowing oratory after you leave. But can you tell us a little bit about what the concept behind it is? um, You know, I just wrote this without really thinking it through. And I wrote it in like 10 minutes or whatever. That's kind of how I do things. They gestate and then they come out really quickly. Um, I know somebody else like that. Yeah. So, but, 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 but the idea and, and, but the idea behind it, I can articulate now, which is, uh, and why it was the subtitle came last boomer posting. Cause I looked at it and said, this is boomer. Posting. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean, the list of things follow are, are things that anybody can do. Anybody can do today. They don't expose you at all. So they're very low risk. Um, and they, None of them are negative. They're all affirmative things that you can do. Um, and they're, I think that they're all sort of helpful. So they all kind of, they all kind of fit a certain format. Um, things like how you should, and, the, and then finally, they're within the, and part of the risk aversion is they're all within the very narrow sphere of political action that we have today. Because we're in this very stupid space where you can't, run for anything you can't take political stances you can't do public things without getting attacked by everybody so i wanted to produce things that are even the peon can kind of do and i'm a peon yeah no i think these are very uh white pilling and you know at the risk of boomer posting i think i'm gonna hang these above my desk uh (laughs) as a as a solid reminder i already do like like three quarters of these things, but uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, excited yeah. to read them out. We're working on number eleven too. I will own a gun and learn how to use it. We're waiting on our DC permits um, <laughs> right now. I so. already own a license. gun and already license. know how to use yeah. it. I don't need so. a permit, Dan. Yeah. It's a license. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a license. It's still, it's still waiting. I'm looking at the mailbox <laughs> every day and I can't see it. Um, Andrew, where can people find more about you and, and keep up with all the things you're doing? Well, um, I do. Your many alts should they follow? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do have. Uh, I do have a Twitter, so A R K L O S T E R, A R Kloster, uh, and then I think it's Andrew Kloster. Dot Substack. It's, so it's linked in your bio. It's linked in my bio, but yeah. 
but I'm here. I'm very mm-hmm. pleased with what you guys are doing. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me here. And I wish nice. you all the best. It, I would hate it, to be your enemy also. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be very terrifying. 100%. So glad to hear um, you say that. And, and if, uh, if anyone needs a special kind of legal services, uh, wh- wh- where, should they, where should they call? Well, they should email you probably. Yeah, email should Saurabh, you? and then I'm happy to. I'm happy to once he vets them. Yeah, that. yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> great. Please give out your personal phone number. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, thank you. This week, before we finished up the episode for today, we wanted to read from a couple of these Rules for Radical Patriots we talked about a lot on the episode and in the introduction. Uh, I'm only going to read 10 of them, but I think that it's a good teaser for the full 28 and highly recommend that you go to AmericanMoment.org slash A-M-C-A-N-O-N to find the rest. Uh, Rules for Radical Patriots, boomer posting. Number one, I will, wherever possible, buy American. Number two, I will reduce my consumption. Number three, I will meet my neighbors. Number four, if I am a business owner, I will pay attention to hiring and firing. I will not fire anyone due to mere public pressure. If I fire someone, it will be because I want to and because I disagree with their speech or work performance, not because someone else thinks it's embarrassing. I will not hire or support anyone who hates me or my family or my values. I will only hire or support people who want to preserve my community. I will not delegate hiring decisions if I don't have to. I will not be bullied into hiring or supporting someone I'm not comfortable with. I will not be impressed by college degrees. Five, I will donate my time to causes before I donate money. I will not write a check and consider my job done. Six, I will read the Bible to my children and grandchildren. I will read traditional fairy tales and stories that I loved growing up. Seven, today I will do one concrete task to improve my home. Eight, Today I will do one concrete task to improve my body. I will learn about what I put in my body. 9. When I feel uncomfortable, I will speak up. If a parent is not teaching their children right in public, I will speak up. If someone litters or curses or claims that something wrong is right, I will speak up. I will only be silent if I legitimately fear for my safety. I will not be silent and say something is not my problem or not my business. 10. I will visit local public meetings and I will speak up. If my library is having an immoral event or the local school is proposing something wrong, I will get a few friends and speak up. And there's a lot more. Um, and, and there's a lot of fun ones. Um, you can see that some of them are of slightly inconsistent length, and that's okay. It's uh, He told us that he, he kind of wrote it in an afternoon, and it certainly feels like that. But I think there's a lot of embedded wisdom in here that you should check out. Nick, what's your favorite one of the 28? You know, I... I was still trying to pick one as you were doing your dramatic reading, uh, which, by the way, we should make you do more often. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really hard for me to actually pick out a favorite one. I think my favorite theme is certainly um, that I will speak up. There are several. I mean, there are 20. This list is 28 long, of which you read 10. Um, and several of them say that, that uh, you know, we should speak up when we don't think things are right or when things are going poorly. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people are very terrified of now, uh, speaking up, telling the truth, uh, saying when something bothers them. Uh, you know, Andrew talked about it uh, on, the, on the episode today, but 
it is actually your business. Uh, you know, what, what's happening in your community, what's happening in your neighborhood, what's happening uh, in your home. And I think that you have a, a moral uh, and I would say spiritual responsibility to react to those things in an appropriate manner. So um, just generally that, I think that's a great theme. People don't do that enough. Yeah. I'll say my favorite is probably, well, not my favorite, but one of the ones that I think we've tried to implement the most is number 20. I will not shop on Amazon. Mm. Uh, as far as I know, we still have not done any major pur- purchases off of amazon.com at American moment. Yeah. Um, and so we have, we've done our absolute best to do that. So anyway, and we- I also canceled my, even though I love whole foods, I canceled my Amazon prime subscription. I just, I'm done with that. Very nice. Um, Anyway, thank you guys for listening to this episode of Moment of Truth. We're creating towards uh, our first full year of doing this show, and it's uh, it's been very exciting. We've been so grateful to have uh, those of you who've been listening since the beginning and those of you who've only joined on recently. Uh, once again, be sure to check out the backlog, rate this re- rate and review this podcast five stars. Um, you know, Email nick at podcastinamericanmoment.org if you'd like to harass him about anything. Uh, and be sure to tune in next week on Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.